Cool. Beautiful. All right. Good evening, everyone, slash good morning, if you are where most people are on the mm -hmm. east coast of the United States, I would imagine, um, or afternoon if you're in Europe, or good night if you're in Australia like uh, myself and Peter are here. Uh, either way, wherever you are, um, somewhat topical greetings. So uh, same as always, if someone could give us like a little bit of a, a nudge or something like that over in the YouTube live comments just to let us know that we are uh, live, that would be fantastic because otherwise um, we will be sort of guesstimating whether we're actually sort of working with anyone um, or just having a discussion amongst ourselves. But uh, okay, there we go. It started. Beautiful. So um, today's topic is, is hedge funds, but we are going to do something a little bit different just because um, hedge funds are, uh, of course, extremely interesting and they're extremely dynamic and there's lots and lots of talk about. And we have, um, you know, a few people that are uh, incredibly adept at, um, you know, working within the financial space, uh, myself included, or I would like to say. Um, but it's one of those things where, um, you know, maybe it's, it's more so finance rather than, than good old-fashioned macroeconomics and um, what we're going to do uh, in the interest of, of having a good discussion is kind of split this particular Q&A session in two. Um, and the first part will be sort of answering questions that people had about hedge funds, but we found that they were somewhat limited. Uh, maybe it's just because I did such a brilliant job of explaining exactly how they worked and um, left no questions in anyone's mind. Or, or maybe it was just because people just sort of, um, you know, less divided on the issue and it's kind of like uh, an instruction manual rather than something that's a, it's a guide. Um, whatever it may be, I would like to say it's the first option, but um, that's fine. The second part of our video is going to be sort of more of a debate. Um, and I have um, <laughs> been brought on um, Peter Economics here um, mm -hmm. with his lovely little, little profile picture, smiling very happily um, because uh, for, for anyone that didn't know, I was called out um in uh reddit bad economics apparently for, for having bad economic theories and uh peter sort of uh, has a youtube channel where he's gone over um some things that hey maybe i overlooked or maybe some things that we sort of disagree on with uh you know fundamental theories and uh and economics is, is not necessarily about shouting at one another telling people that they're they're wrong or saying that their policies are bad like uh like that lovely subreddit did um, but having a discussion and sort of working out what the nuances and the realities are, um, you know, perhaps in, in academics versus reality. Uh, and that's what we're going to hope to do today. But as always, um, we do have a pretty diverse range of people with a pretty diverse range of expertise here. Um, so we'll go through the introductions. Well, I'll do, I'll do the introductions briefly for the three that have already been on our live stream before. Um, and I know not to sort of um, step on anyone's toes or, or say too much. So... Uh, Compounded Daily, um, I've, I've had him back on because uh, one of the topics at hand in the video was what, what short selling is and how short selling can be used to uh, hedge specific risk and, and how that was kind of the idea of, you know, what a hedge fund should do um, back in the day. And um, he has a fantastic video on his personal YouTube channel um, explaining sort of exactly the mechanics of how short selling works and um, some things to consider there and in fantastic detail. And I really do encourage people to go and check out his YouTube channel. It's um, not got nearly the traction that it should because his videos are just fantastic and uh, they're short, snappy, and, and also uh, his background is uh, is incredible. So he works uh, in investment banking. And um, if I reveal too much more than that, I'll um, I'll, I'll certainly um, be, be killed because it's all sort of super top secret stuff, but uh, obviously an extremely knowledgeable individual. 
uh, Captain Locke, um, obviously a fantastic educator, um, extremely sort of skilled and, and smart man, a master's degree in some such technical field that's um, probably too smart for even myself. Uh, he obviously has uh, experience operating uh, private equity. He's a very successful businessman, all the same. Uh, I can't reveal too much or I will be, uh, be whacked for revealing his, his top secret uh, agenda um, or, you know, doxing who he is in real life. Um, but needless to say, uh, obviously has a, a lot of experience uh, even in the sort of, you know, world of, of finance and, and equity and, um, you know, asset management, but uh, also just a, a very, very skilled person generally. That's why we're uh, selling then, it. Thanks, though. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Be humble. Um, and then Peter, so I'll actually let you introduce yourself um, and you can, you can plug your YouTube channel as well um, because I brought him on board because, uh, because he disagrees with me and I think that's what's going to be really important is, uh, you know, having having a bit of a discussion, um, you know, about, uh, you know, times where uh, I'm called out and uh, as a great Australian Prime Minister once said, um, no one's the suppository of all knowledge. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think it's really important to, to get different perspectives from, you know, everyone, especially in a field that is, uh, you know, is, is dynamic and, and, you know, sometimes uh, shaded in nuances economics is. So, so Peter, give us, a, give us a brief rundown of what your background is, what you do. And um, yeah, now feel free to also uh, shout out your channel there as well. Oh, yeah, no, no, cool. That's cool. Thank, thanks for having me on. Well, yeah, I've, so I've only just started studying a graduate diploma in economics. And so this is my first semester interesting first semester, but I've been reading about economics for many, many years, and I've done, I don't know, quote-unquote un online courses and the like, and yeah, it was only last year that I was like, you know what, I have to choose a career for myself. I'm 33 at the moment, and waiting this long to choose a career for yourself is um, generally frowned upon, and I can see that now. Uh, so yeah, and economics has been a passion of mine for many years. And it's only, I've only increased my readings over the years. I've read many books, articles, obviously watch YouTube. Um, obviously, I watch, um, I've watched every one of your videos. I've, I've gone back, watched the backlog and stuff. Um, and yeah, I just, <laughs> in terms of that video, I was like, you know what, I have, I have some knowledge now. Um, got my YouTube channel. And yeah, I'm going to make a video. And I'm glad you discovered it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's. Uh, it's interesting because, of course, as I was saying, uh, you know, it's, it's always. It's always fun to sort of, uh, you know, like shout out to the haters or whatever it may be. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, someone. Someone tagged me. It's like a subreddit where basically I was called out. And I don't even remember what it was that I was called out for. I think it was. Um, uh, do we need recessions or something along those lines? Uh, and they disagree with the point. I think. I think the big takeaway was that people really, really hated on my. Um, you know, idealistic notion of, of um, you know, general appreciation of, of wealth um, was I sort of compared uh, it to the actual sort of value of the Dutch East India Company. Um, I think the actual original post, you know, made some interesting points. And I think you made some interesting points as well. Um, you know, whether they, they're correct or whether I necessarily agree <laughs> with them in practice, that, that's a whole other issue together. But what I found particularly interesting was that the people weren't angry at me for, um, you know, being, being glib or, or anything about sort of economic specifics or um, they weren't angry at me for maybe misrepresenting, um, you know, uh, an idea or a particular theory that they, they opposed or, or agreed with. No, people were particularly angry and I mean furious 
about the idea that I sort of suggested uh, that the Dutch East India Company was not the most valuable company in history. <laughs> um, so I, I, I loved that. Oh, that was when I read that. I I was dying laughing. That was a great read for me. Yeah, uh, and I I think it was I think it was so interesting because of course. Um, you know, it's points. It's all a matter of perspective. Um, but um, realistically, it, there, there's one way to look at it where you can say, okay, um, the Dutch East India Company was the most valuable company in history. And that's sort of to, to potentially look at, at its particular influence over the world at that time and, and what portion of trade, what portion of industry it, um, it controlled and then extrapolate that to if it controlled the same level of the market today. Um, but then... Um, I would argue by the same by the same token, uh, you know, back when there were maybe you know a few hundred tribes out there in the world, and the first tribe uh, sort of invented some fire and started cooking. Well, its industry probably represented ten percent of the world's uh, industrial output at that point. Uh, so maybe you know um, the, that old sort of tribesman uh, was was the most uh, powerful company in the history of the world. Um, you can see where sort of sometimes those examples get a bit. Um, Bizarre and, and and extrapolating data, especially extrapolating data um, from uh, economic prowess, I suppose, over history, uh, is, is really a rough art. And um, I, what I sort of the emphasis of that video was the fact that we are so much richer today than we ever were back then. Um, if it ruffled some feathers for people that I don't know have uh, VOC underwear, I guess, or you know live and die by their uh you know hope that uh you know their shares in the dutch east india company is going to to somehow come back uh me well this is me yeah I don't, well my goodness gracious me I, I i i had no idea that i made people so angry about that that was kind of funny to me anyway uh completely off topic um but thanks for peter for agreeing to come on here because i think he was the only person from that stream that actually had something um constructive to to give back as as feedback and um and unfortunately, he was completely downvoted or anything with that. So uh, anyway, now um, it is uh, still the topic at hand that we're going to discuss hedge funds. So uh, I don't want to get too distracted before we get to that second part. Uh, and someone in the YouTube comment section had some really, really good questions now. Yes. Uh, as for questions, we didn't really get too many of them um, just about this video. As we sort of said, um, it's just one of those topics where people kind of I don't know, disagree less or have less passionate opinions about. So if you do have any questions, put them in the YouTube live comments. Um, we'll probably get to them pretty quickly because um, yeah, we kind of need some questions. So um, the question that I want to answer is from uh, Nahian8. I don't know if I said your name right, but um, he, he sort of asked, uh, why did the incentive for hedge funds change over time or fall over time. Um, so in the video, we looked at the idea that hedge funds are supposed to be, uh, you know, they're supposed to be an investment class. They're supposed to be something that delivers you returns. Um, they're supposed to be something where if you put your money in, you're going to make more money. And that's fantastic. You know, hopefully you, you kind of have something where it's approaching or, or, you know, if you're really lucky, even exceeding normal market returns. But of course, um, the idea of a hedge fund is that they are hedged. So you're not exposed to uh, market risk. Now, in the video, I used the example of, let's say we had a, um, you know, a very wealthy individual. Maybe you started a successful company. Um, you know, let's say that this individual is not like a publicly traded company or anything like that, but it's a, it's a large private company. 
um, let's say it makes furniture, you know, um, you know, it's a large furniture company. It has a, has a factory that makes furniture and he sells it through, uh, you know, maybe a few dozen stores that he has scattered around the United States. Sounds pretty good, you know, good on him. Um, all power to local industry. Now, um, this kind of individual, let's say he's bringing in, uh, you know, $10, $20 million a year in income um, from his business and he wants uh, a way to invest that money, um, you know, accumulate some wealth there um, that's going to uh, really, really work for him. Well, he has some options. Obviously, uh, one of the biggest options for him is going to be, well, I can just, you know, invest it straight into the stock market. Um, if I really want to diversify, I can probably spend, you know, $20 million over a good wide array of stocks and I'll have exposure to a lot of, you know, I'll have exposure to a lot of the market then. Um, the second option is, of course, I can, you know, maybe go get some real estate or whatever it might be. Uh, or, you know, if I wanted to, I can, um, hey, maybe reinvest it all back into my business and, and try that. Uh, now, the problem with all of these sorts of options, these sort of typical investment vehicles, is that uh, let's say something like uh, the 2008 mortgage crisis happens or the 2020, uh, you know, coronavirus recession that you know, it's almost inevitable that will sort of fall into uh, comes around. Well, then there's two things that are going to happen. Uh, of course, you know, his furniture stores are not going to be going nearly as well. Um, in this kind of instance, they might be forced to close because they're just considered non-essential services or even in a regular recession that, that's sort of not sort of, um, you know, a, a shock recession like, um, like, like caused by a coronavirus or whatever it may be. Um, people aren't going to be out there buying nearly as much furniture. So uh, his business is going to, to suffer a bit, right? Um, he might not draw any income if he's if he stores are forced to close he might still be forced to pay rent uh, factories are expensive to maintain and if he is keeping staff on hand he's going to have to still pay uh, salaries like you know what a, what a good business normally does now that is going to very quickly turn from him earning 20 million dollars a year into something where hey you know maybe the business is, is going to turn a loss um it's, it's foreseeable that that kind of stuff would happen so he would potentially, if he wants to keep his business running, uh, have to put money into the business. He'll have to turn around and it's like, oh man, if I want to sort of pay my wages or cover the loss for the year um, and I don't have any cash sort of sitting reserve in the business, maybe I'll have to sort of put in you know, $10 million or whatever it may be, whether it's a loan to the business or whether it's just sort of a direct investment into more equity or um, whatever the sort of arrangement is. Um, let's say it's a loan because he owns 100% of it to keep it simple. Um, he's going to have to find that money from somewhere. Now, normally, uh, for pretty wealthy people like this, uh, a majority of their money is kept in some kind of asset, uh, primarily something like, uh, you know, uh, shares. Now, if this is the reality uh, where he's going to have to put in uh, money to, to prop up his business during a recession, chances are uh, whatever shares he's invested in, even if it's a nice broad market index fund, is going to be suffering a bit. Now, we saw when, you know, sort of coronavirus really, really got rolling, um, a 30% dip in the market within the space of about two weeks. Now, if his business was struggling at that time, he's going to have to take his assets, his own personal assets, and sell them at a 30% loss from peak um, to, to prop up his business, which is really, really bad. It's not what you want to be doing as a good, smart, rational business person because that's, you know, buying high. If you bought and you accumulated your assets while your business is going well, while markets are going well, and you've sold them while markets are going badly. So it's buying high and selling low, the opposite of what you want to be doing. Instead, what you want 
is to have an asset that's kind of almost running counter to the market or um, something that has no correlation to market movements at all. Now, historically, that's what hedge funds were for. Hedge funds would be sort of uh, disassociated from the market. Their, their returns were uh, relatively independent of market returns, which meant for our wealthy individuals, they could invest into um, hedge funds. And they knew that, hey, look, if I ever need to pull money out of it, well, you know, maybe it's having a bad year, maybe it's having a good year, but it's not necessarily guaranteed to be having a bad year on the same sort of time where I'm going to be having a bad year. So I've got some stability in my portfolio. Um, now, over time, that eventually changed into... So okay. I, I, I do want to say that you've been uh, chatting for the last 10 minutes for... We haven't got yeah. a, a we're, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to stop you. No, you're you're pretty much saying everything that I was gonna say. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm always done. I'm always done. Ah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do. I do sort of tend to go on my my, my monologues, but um, no, it's all but, right. We're, I was enjoying it. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, but of course, that sort of changed now to well, hedge funds sort of realized that um, hey, you know, if I really want to make money, I'm gonna make it through my two and twenty. Um, or whatever my sort of particular fee structure is. And yeah, you know, running, you know, contrary to market uh, is great and all, but uh, isn't it even better if we just try and make as most the, the most fucking money that we possibly can? And, and it's certainly easier to sell the idea that, hey, if you invest in us, you're going to make more money rather than, oh, you know, we're this sort of fringe, um, you know, financial tool that, that's going to help people in a very sort of specific use case. And I think that's why it changed. At the end of the day, it kind of all came down to what's going to make the most money. Um, so I, I hand it over to uh, Compounded and, and, and Tice. Um, they don't work in hedge funds per se, but they do have exposure to the industry. Maybe they can give us some more insight over, uh, you know, what, what sort of um, change there. Anything that you guys would like to add to that? Matthias? Well, I, I mean, the <laughs> so the monologue went on for so long that that I totally I totally forgot what uh, the original question was. <laughs> so wow. if you don't mind, that's why uh, that's why I punted the question to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so why did the incentives for hedge funds change over time? So why did they move from these hedged entities that were just about um, you know uh, balancing sort of risk and and providing sort of um well i think i can of... actually uh, answer that um okay yeah, so, yeah um i mean my understanding of why they shifted and i apologize for the leaf blower in the background there's somebody with a leaf blower right outside my office and i'm not happy about it um but one of the things that i've noticed uh with with hedge funds is you know they originally started with this idea that they will be uh you know seeking uh alpha during uh like these recessions or, or times where the market moves against them. So they're looking for, um, you know, assets that aren't correlated with the market. Um, and if anyone knows about betas, uh, you know, they're, they're looking for either uh, zeroing out their beta or uh, f um, finding uh, a negative beta. Or they're looking for, I'm sorry, they're looking for just pretty much negative correlation. Um, and they were doing that for quite a long time. But uh, hedge funds realized that uh, the structure that they have in place isn't just useful for uh, this type of hedging strategy. You can also use it to just run a like pretty much a regular fund, uh, similar to a mutual fund, but with more, uh, and I'm sorry, the leaf blowers are literally right outside my window right now. No, uh, so... I actually can't hear it at all. Oh, okay. Yeah, awesome. So awesome. awesome. Yeah, it's then. fine. Okay, because I can hear it. And it's super loud. It's super distracting for me. Um, what was I saying? The, so 
and this is also going to answer one of the questions that uh, somebody else asked. I believe it was um, Victor Yang, uh, or let's say, what's the difference between hedge funds, mutual funds, superannuation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so with hedge funds, uh, one of the key things about hedge funds is they're only open to a select number of investors. Uh, the investors typically have to be accredited or sophisticated investors. You're looking at a minimum of uh, $500,000 to a million uh, dollars uh, for uh, your minimum investment uh, into the fund. And then when you invest into the fund, there's a lockup. So there's a time period in which you cannot withdraw your money. Um, and then in addition to that, when you want to withdraw your money, you have to provide uh, a heads up notice. And it's not like they're going to immediately liquidate uh, your, uh, your part of the fund. Um, and so what this does is it allows the hedge fund to enter into long play strategies or into strategies that are uh, involve assets that are already liquid. So uh, whereas mutual funds have investment into liquid uh, types of, of products or assets. Um, and that is uh, super important. Uh, like when we're talking about the hedge funds, why the incentive fee has changed over time is is directly a part of the way that they are structured. So yeah. they can operate very similar to a mutual fund and they can trade in liquid and illiquid assets if, if they show if they so desire, but they have additional benefits of not having to publicly disclose uh, that information. Um, and uh, over time, this just allows them uh, to change up their strategy. Yeah, and I, I think that was uh, an interesting one as well, because of course, um, when people are thinking about hedge funds and, and stuff of that nature, they're going to you know, probably think of like, uh, you know, the big short and I think that was a fantastic example uh, Mike Burry during his his position, you know, shorting housing bonds in uh, sorry, shorting mortgage bonds um, prior to, to 2008. Uh, a major concern from him wasn't necessarily uh, what was going to happen with the, with the bonds and what that what was going on with that position. He was relatively sure of that. Um, his issue was that people would come and withdraw money from the fund, uh, and his position would basically be destroyed by that because he would have to um, close out his position to to service um you know the, the withdrawals of his clients and there was a lot of talk about things like lockups and um you know what was eligible for withdrawals by by his clients and uh, that was sort of a major dynamic of the movie that hey maybe um maybe it was lost for for some people that, that were watching it but there you go you can you can sort of go and re-watch what is a, a pretty fantastic movie with that that little bit of extra information um, um sure. and and re uh, real quick e, if i can just kind of add to this topic as well um it, Head, so in the, the idea of hedge funds really kind of, you know, fading out of love for investors, uh, at least accredited investors over time, um, there, there's been a, you know, a vast, vast, vast uh, kind of uh, number of, of research just examining the returns of hedge funds um, over time. And, you know, early on, they could take advantage of, of volatility um, through high frequency trading. But as as that's become more popular, um, you know, the the race for quickly trading on news and um, uh, volatility has become, you know, less less popular. But the notion of a hedge fund uh, kind of using the hedge risk. Well, you know, while it's existed for the long time, a long time, the question was always, well, can you beat the market? And even if uh, you know you can provide that counterparty risk, whether or not you could uh, beat the market was, was you know pretty consistently, even in the earlier ages of ages of hedge funds, 
was still questionable. So, um, you know, obviously we hear about the ones where uh, uh, victories are, 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 are you know, uh, we hear about Michael Burry and, and his victory. We hear about um, uh, not necessarily Bill Ackman's victory with Herbalife, but we hear about his victory most recently with his short position uh, for COVID-19. Um, but what's not talked about is the vast number of hedge funds that are just not performing consistently and beating the market. In fact, uh, and this will be the last part of this. I'm sorry, I'm going on <laughs> on to um, there. No, keep continue because I was, that was going to get to that later. Uh, so if there, you want to get, if you want to talk about that now, it's fine. Yeah. So, yeah really interesting. So there's um, this, when when you have let's say uh, uh, a, a soccer football team, kind of like uh, uh, you know Liverpool, who can almost always be guaranteed to uh, be in the English Premier League year after year. Um, you know, that's kind of expected. But what the research finds is that even if you have one hedge fund who beats the market one year, it, it's almost never likely that the following year they also beat the market. So um, that in itself and kind of aggregating all that research together is really what's making hedge funds, I would say, far less popular as even accredited investors, people who have that capital, uh, become more knowledge about that knowledgeable about that so yeah. and, uh, and you um i, mean, I, I have some things to add as well so on the first question which um the the question was uh how how the incentives and uh, and other things have changed with hedge funds over over time um, i mean it depends on how far we go back right but um uh, before um, the 2008 financial crisis hedge funds were actually performing quite well so like between 2003 and, uh, and 2007, um, the, um, the amount of hedge funds uh, launched was um, uh, like in, in the US, for, for example, was something like a thousand new hedge funds a year. Um, mm. And then when 2008 happened, um, there was uh, obviously a bunch of those hedge funds that lost a ton of money and also went bankrupt. Um, and after that, there was also, a, you know, a, a significant amount of regulatory changes, not only for the hedge funds themselves, but also in, in, like in general in the financial industry. Um, and this led to it being much more difficult to run a hedge fund and uh, in particular, much more difficult for hedge funds to make profit. Um, and that, that has uh, led to, I, I believe in Europe, it's uh, something like two thirds of hedge funds that, that have shut their doors since uh, 2008. Um, and still today, it's something like uh, 80 to 90 percent of hedge funds that don't profit. Um, they're actually losing money. Um, so th there's multiple factors to play into why that is, but we can get more into that at a later point. Then mm -hmm. the other thing that um, uh, that Locke mentioned was the question about what what's the difference between mutual funds, uh, hedge funds and uh, superannuation funds. And I, I just wanted to, you know, draw some lines in the sand that just makes that easy to understand. So hedge funds are private investment. Um, they're private investment vehicles. So that means that when they're funded, it's uh, private investors, uh, institutions, accredited investors, and so on that are pooling money together. And they, they have a hedge fund manager that then uh, over time can adjust the, um, the investment strategy of the hedge fund, depending on what the market is doing. Um, with a mutual fund, it's uh, retail investors that are buying a publicly traded investment vehicle, 
And the strategy for mutual fund is predefined uh, at the moment that you make the investment. So it, it doesn't change over time, um, at least not very much. It only changes within the, um, uh, the realms of the strategy that's been predefined. And then super, um, superannuation funds um, is essentially funds that are set up uh, by private, private companies to invest the pensions of their employees. Um, so the, these are the three general categories and that ju just to make it super clear to the guy that asked that question. In addition yeah. uh, to that, so I'll, I'll add to that. Um, with mutual funds, mutual funds here in the United States uh, are subject to the Securities Act of, of 1933 and 1940. However, hedge funds aren't because they are not mutual funds. They're not open to the public. Uh, they do not uh, they're not an indice. They're not available to uh, the average investor. You can't go on like TD Ameritrade and buy shares in a hedge fund. That just simply does not uh, happen because of the nature of the hedge funds themselves. And uh, like we said, they are private uh, uh, partnerships. Okay. Uh, and additionally, with mutual funds, mutual funds, uh, like Matthias said, have to uh, follow a specific style and this style is set out usually uh, ahead of time and they're only allowed to adjust it over time that and so that's what called style drift style drift for mutual funds has to occur at a slower rate now with hedge funds uh, their style their style uh can just uh, change on fly they have the ability to do that which allows for more flexibility and allows for uh them to take advantage of the market uh when when market dynamics have shifted so drastically, whereas a mutual fund can't exactly do that without uh, raising a few eyebrows. Uh, and this is all to protect. Uh, so the reason why mutual funds can't really do that is uh, to protect um, what are called unsophisticated investors, the average investor, um, whereas hedge funds can do that uh, because their their investors are more sophisticated and what we mean by that is they have more to lose, basically, because they are they're engaging in, in things that ultimately are extremely can be extremely risky. Uh, the reward is great, but the risk is also uh, very great. Whereas with mutual funds, your risk is much less, and that means that you're going to get less returns. But that also means during the downtimes, you don't get screwed as much as hedge funds during the downtimes because during downtimes hedge funds can literally tank and they could wipe like that could just wipe out uh the, the private partnership and all the assets uh with the mutual fund that doesn't happen yes the mutual funds overall assets are going to decrease your wealth will decrease but it's not going to decrease as much as uh the hedge fund and but at the same time your wealth isn't going to grow as much as the hedge fund in theory in theory uh yeah, and I mean, um, I want to um, keep it moving because obviously we, we wanted a second part of, of this video as well. And I know sure. it was my fault. I, I went on for, for too long. Um, but uh, a really interesting question from the YouTube live stream as well. Um, and we'll sort of uh, do a bit, bit, of a, bit of a lightning round, uh, I suppose, um, is this. Uh, uh, so one of, the, one of the questions was, uh, they understand the tax benefits of paying capital gains tax, so carried interest, uh, in a company rather than a, sorry, in a partnership rather than a company scenario. Uh, but especially given the industry that it is, you know, dealing with 
um, you know, investors dealing with people's finances, dealing with uh, wealthy people's finances, uh, isn't it unbelievably risky to have a partnership structure um, with uh, unlimited liability rather than a company structure which limits the liability of, of the managing partner or the, the managing agent then, um, which I think is a, actually a really, really good question. Um, so, you know, in, in general, when we're talking about companies, companies uh, in most nations around the world are their own little independent entity uh, and investors in there are sort of limited in how much they can lose to the amount they put into it. Uh, whereas if you're talking about things like, like partnerships or, or sole trader arrangements, you're kind of one and the same thing with the business. And if you get, if the business gets sued, uh, you get sued. If the business is forced to pay out $100 million and it doesn't have $100 million, well, they're coming after you then as well. Um, so it kind of puts your ass out on the line, I suppose, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and I don't know if there's anyone sort of have anything to say about the actual sort of um, benefits or, or sort of arrangement as to why it's done like that. Yeah, I mean, in, in so in part, um, the LLC, you know, just, you know, to start uh, provides that corporate bail. So it provides the additional layer of protection, um, you know, if, if something goes wrong under your firm, right? But there's the liability that exposes you if, let's say that there is um, blatant mismanagement, if you do something that uh, is in total viol violation of your investment thesis, um, and uh, obviously, that's not communicated and signed off to by the people who put money into your fund. Um, in, in which case, somebody suing the company will then pierce the corporate veil and most likely go after the hedge fund managers. Uh, fortunately enough, a, a lot of these hedge fund managers, be it just fund managers in general, private equity hedge fund managers, um, they have the uh, protection for their uh they, 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 they hire huge staffs of lawyers, right? They, uh, and they prepare these agreements um, with, with these documents, uh, protecting them against uh, liability as best as they can, right? In addition to that, they purchase liability insurance. Um, so in the case where there might be uh, something that goes wrong, the fund goes belly up, um, liability insurance uh, will obviously be reluctant to pay out, but uh, will... Uh, most likely and, and idealistically, idealistically protect them. But to, to kind of put the nature of how things just actually work, if somebody is unhappy that you lost them all their money, and by the way, um, typically the investors in these funds are like pensions funds, university endowments, so they're they're diversified, expecting maybe some funds to, to, to lose money anyway. Um, so oftentimes going after that money wouldn't be economical for them to be expecting it, yeah. but they're comfortable with the fact that it occurs anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It, but you know, point, point being is, um, they, if, for, if, if I, I guess if a, uh, uh, if you were to get sued, right. And you are an LLC, uh, the, the way of the game is they're going to come after the individuals. They're going to put the names on there as well. Um, you can argue to the judge maybe that you don't want to be, that you shouldn't be included on it because you have limited liability protection and your personal assets shouldn't be up for it. But most likely these fund managers purchase liability insurance anyway, which uh, is, is pretty broad. They pay significant, significant amounts for it a month um, just for the protection of themselves. So yeah, long, yeah. long story short is we, 
I don't, none of us are lawyers, so we can't really comment yeah. specifically on how exactly it works. But at the end of the day, it's uh, the hedge fund manager does have protection, usually in the form of insurance. Doesn't mean that he's not liable. It's that the insurance is now on the hook. And so because somebody else is now paying for it, I, I, a third party, the insurer, the insurer up front wants a high premium for uh, for that in the case that something does go south. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, of course, you, the, you the insurance is going to that. The, go the ahead. Liability insurance does not uh, cover if you uh, have committed gross negligence. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That that's a that is yep. that's a different case though. Uh, now right. most hedge funds don't commit gross negligence. It's, yep, yep. We we we'd, uh, uh, even even the ones that do lose money. Uh, you know, it's uh, gross negligence is is something that is. Uh, is an entirely different beast. Uh, it, you can't you can't associate losing money with gross negligence. <laughs> and, and, and if you were a if you were a director of a normal uh, limited liability company, um, and you committed gross negligence, you would still be on the hook as the director of yep. those kinds of those exactly. Companies. So yeah. the difference between a partnership and a, a company in that particular instance is um, it is very different. Now, some interesting sort of takeaways from that is. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen a, a personal indemnity uh, insurance contract for mm -hmm. a hedge fund manager, but my God almighty. Yep. That, oh yeah. That is fat. That yep. is like, that, that's <laughs> the kind of paperwork that, um, you know, you'd think, yeah, oh, okay. You know, a hundred page document or something like that. No, no, no. That's the kind of document that they sort of wheel in with like uh, you know, a forklift. Um, and you know, there, there's teams of lawyers that look after those things that, um, you know, the, the premiums on them are absolutely unbelievable, but it's not something that's specific to their industry. Uh, personal indemnity insurance is is kind of, it relates to a lot of people's industries, uh, most notably in what people sort of most commonly know it as is, is doctors, you know, uh, healthcare professionals, uh, people like surgeons, um, people, you know, like sort of trauma doctors and, and things like that. Um, they also have personal indemnity insurance in, in a lot of countries around the world because, um, you know, they are, they are liable for, uh, you know, Know, mistreatment and there's nobody more litigious than um litigious is that a word uh no one that wants to sue it's you close. more than a, than a yeah. sick rich american um so if you've uh you know sort of made them unhealthy or if you've lost the money you better believe that they're coming after you so indemnity insurance is really important for a lot of people uh and and hedge funds the the idea the argument sort of uh, between a, a limited liability company which of course you know sort of has a, has a layer of protection for um, for the managing agents and um, the uh, other people, uh, the other option, which is just to have it as a regular, you know, run-of-the-mill company, a limited liability company. Um, so it gets even more interesting when you consider that there are other institutions that that aren't allowed to have that type of structure. So when you think about um, accounting firms, right, um, things like Deloitte, KPMG, um, you know, the, the big four accounting firms, um, we all sort of know it's like, oh, I've made partner. I, I've made partner at my firm or, or if I'm, you know, if I'm an accounting firm, it's, it's making partner. If I'm at a law firm, it's making partner. And these sorts of entities are not allowed to be limited liability companies. Uh, oftentimes they'll layer and, you know, they'll have very, very, very complex structures of partnerships and, and limited liability companies structured in there. But uh, the actual main institution itself has to be a partnership. That's why you hear about making partner or being an equity partner. Um, and that's just sort of the rules of, of how they're supposed to run because the idea is that if you're an accountant uh, or if you're a lawyer, 
they don't want you setting up your firm as a limited liability company um, because that means that you can kind of, you know, sort of compartmentalize your, your professional sort of, um, you know, sort of policies there uh, and sort of limit yourself of risk. Whereas if you're a financial professional or if you're a legal professional, uh, you should be on the line for, for what kind of advice it is that you are giving for your clients. So that's why they yep. have it structured like that. And they, they basically sort of mandate that you have to be a partnership. You cannot. And that's a, you know, really comes from our uh, style expectations of, of these professionals. Like we don't want these professionals to be able to profit uh, during the good times and then be able to turn around and do really uh, uh, sketchy stuff and get away with it. Uh, yeah, like they could in the past. Like I, I wipe my hands with this. I, it was my company. I, I'm just. I'm just. I just work here, man. You there's, know, a, yeah, there's a reason why we have uh, the in law. We have the piercing the corporate veil. It's because people have tried so long to hide themselves behind like the corporate veil, uh, yeah. saying that oh, it's, you know, they you know, wash your hands of all of that. But no, it's it's not. Like if you're a shady person and you do shady stuff and you do things that are going to anger people, especially if you steal money, if you commit fraud and steal money, people will be coming after you because society has uh, generally agreed that just not, nobody wants uh, to be screwed over like that. The only people who are advocating for, uh, you know, persons should be able to get off scot-free are, are people who, you know, generally have that mindset of I can get away with anything and I should be able to get away with anything without right. any remorse. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and I don't want to get too political here either, but I actually think limited liability companies are kind of immoral. I mean, the, um, the, the whole point really is not, it's not to, um, it's not to defend the directors, right? It's not actually the people running the companies that the limited liability is for. It's for the owners, for the shareholders. Mm -hmm. This yeah. creates uh, bad incentives where, the shareholders can um, vote for, like through corporate actions, vote for the company doing X, Y, and C that really is, is just like the only motive is, uh, is profit and they don't care about the results from it. Um, they, I think it's an anachronism of the state in a, in a certain way. Um, the, you know, the, the state wants uh, to provide uh, especially rich shareholders with um, you know, the ability to do whatever they want, as long as it uh, uh, falls in line with, uh, for example, the geoeconomic goals of, uh, of the country. And I, I think it's led to a bunch of things that have given capitalism as a whole a bad name. But I mean, there, there is certainly a discussion we have there. Oh, sorry, go, go ahead, Peter. And then we'll, once you're done, Peter, we'll, we'll go on to the next topic and then we're going to get into our um, sort of debate, I, I guess. Oh, so no, I was just going to say uh, to Matthias, um, but the only thing is, like, you know, that sort of makes sense if you're a really big shareholder, you got millions of dollars. But if you've got, like, I don't know, 10 grand, 20 grand or whatever, uh, whether Australian, American dollars or whatever, and you're investing your money, and, you're and like, you know, you could invest in, let's say, Woolworths, which is just um, a supermarket in Australia, but you, you, you don't have, you don't vote. Um, you, you, and you're, like, you, your money's just in there or it's been invested on your behalf. You don't want the ability, you don't want someone else to be able to sue you, basically. That's the only thing. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It, it's, I, I agree with like where Matthias is coming from, but I also, you know, uh, what uh, Peter said, uh, you know, if but you're a small you fry. You can solve that by having, you know, preferred shares and, uh, and oh, so on, where, yes. where you only have uh, voting rights for, for some of the shares and then for the shares that only confer profits. Uh, I mean, the, those shares don't necessarily have to hold liability because they don't actually, you know, they don't actually hold any power over what the company does. 
Uh, so there, there would be ways to deal with liability without having limited liability companies. I think it's uh, it's an interesting, uh, it's a really interesting um, topic uh, because, of course, there are advantages to having limited liability companies. People are able to invest. Companies are able to raise money from individuals that aren't going to basically be putting their ass out on the line for, for if these companies behave badly. You know, if the company does behave badly, okay, you are as an investor, you lose all of your money um, that you invested, but it's not like someone's going to be coming for your house, which might mean that, um, hey, you know, people that do invest might not invest. If, I, if I'm risking my, my house and my, my livelihood and, you know, all of my assets to invest into this new new startup or whatever it might be, I might think twice and go, well, okay, yeah, I don't know about not necessarily doing that because uh, it's not, I, I'm not limited in my liability. It's a really interesting argument. We don't have time for it now because we're going to go on to one last question uh, before we get into um, sort of a bit more of uh, kind of an open uh, open debate. And this is an interesting one as well, um, which is random walk theory, which is that, hey, um, all of these hedge funds, you know, all of these institutions filled with these incredibly smart individuals, um, you know, with, with all the analytical data in the world, access to unbelievable research tools, 40 monitors each filled with charts and and information and I don't know, maybe sort of a healthy dash of insider trading or whatever it may be. Um, their performance tends to sort of group around market median returns. You know, they, um, you know, some of them do well, some of them do badly, but average performance tends to be sort of, you know, kind of grouped around market performance. Um, and realistically, they, they probably perform uh, less well than the market when you consider that they charge uh, fees on top of that, uh, as well as being less liquid for their um, for their users. So, um, I love this. Sort of... I love this question. I feel like Victor is a plant because I came prepared to answer this exact question. <laughs> Beautiful. So, so the idea of a random walk theory is that the market um, it, it kind of acts independently. No one has a crystal ball. No matter how much analytical sort of tools you do, unless you know absolutely everything there is, there is no no one's omnipotent. No one can truly predict what the market is going to do um, because it's it just sort of it just sort of randomly walks. Uh, it, as soon as information becomes available, it more or less becomes available to everybody. Um, and then, you know, by virtue of the fact that it's already available and people have already reacted on it, um, it is already priced in uh, and no one's at any particular advantage. No one can really predict the future. And that's sort of the, the crux of, of this theory called random walk, which is basically stocks randomly walk around and, and no one can really sort of tell what, what it is that they're doing, no matter how smart they, they claim to be. So Locke, you seem really excited about it. Why don't you kick us off? Yeah, so the random walk theory, uh, for those who just need a little bit uh, of a, more of a primer, is if we look at stocks and uh, uh, the movement of stocks, uh, nobody can really predict where they're going to go next. So the idea is we know it's either going to go up or it's going to go down. We have no idea which way it's going to go, though. That's all we know. Uh, and so if you generate uh, a random uh, pattern, a random walk, meaning like uh, either 50-50 or some you know form of, of up and down, uh, what you're going to see is that over time, it just looks like a stock pattern. It looks like stocks. Um, and so there's this idea that uh, at the end of the day, we really don't know how the whole market is going to move broadly because it's just there's so much information out there that needs to be processed. That at the end of the day, it's better to just sit back and passive. Um, 
And so there's this gets into the, the passive versus uh, active management. Now, f hedge funds fall very much into this active management, meaning that they are on top of things that they have to adjust their portfolio depending on how the market's currently doing and they try to take advantage of it. Um, and so this, uh, in theory, active, active management uh, uh, should beat the market because if you're a sophisticated investor, if you're actually doing stuff, then uh, in theory, you should be able to outsmart the market. If the market on average return, or if the market uh, for last year, if, if the S&P 500, which is usually just based as the, as the market uh, index, like the market return, if it generates 10% uh, returns, then you're a if, if you're a hedge fund and you generate 11% returns, that's a big difference because that's an alpha of 1%. And so that's what, what uh, every, every additional percentage uh, is, is very much important uh, over time. So investors often uh, hunt for these types of funds that are going to generate what is called alpha, alpha uh, returns. And alpha returns are extremely important. Now with, with uh, mutual funds, it's a lot easier to measure their performance in terms of alpha because ha uh, mutual funds have uh, very specific styles uh, and there's a lot of them. So there's a large sample to draw on. Now with hedge funds, uh, it's a little bit different because even though there's a large sample to draw on, every hedge fund is different. And so when we, uh, in, in as, as a doctoral students will, uh, in, in finance, will have to eventually cover uh, this, this topic of how do you measure uh, fund performance. Um, and when it comes to mutual funds, straightforward, pretty easy. It's just uh, you're doing a linear regression. Uh, you're just uh, measuring it to see how well it did relative to the overall market. And then, but with, uh, I'm sorry, with hedge funds, it's a completely different ball game because it's hard to, to tell what the style of the hedge fund is over time. You can look at, if you got access to the hedge funds, uh, asset, like it, it's asset classes and see where it's diversified. You could generate at that moment, uh, a, uh, a pretty good picture of its style. However, its style can change on the fly, depending on the hedge fund. The hedge fund is super actively managed. It could change day to day. Now, that's a really rare case. But in terms of trying to analyze it and measure performance, that is, we're trying to measure alpha, it's extremely difficult because of that ever-changing uh, performance. And then additionally, because it's very difficult, we can't tell if it is a random walk or not. Uh, now. I have some uh, additional data that was uh, compiled over five years um, and it ends in 2016. So it is, you know, three years outdated. Um, but in, in general, uh, it, it doesn't show that great of, of, uh, of a performance when it comes to hedge funds. Hedge, hedge funds typically are either at uh, the market return or below it. Um, and this kind of it, it seems to suggest that the random walk does hold true that hedge funds can't even beat the market. And those that do beat the market maybe aren't actually beating the market because of, of performance and, and, uh, or actual effort and work, but rather because they're simply lucky. But then are we send, then to say that every hedge fund that does beat the market is just uh, there because they're simply lucky that they got the luck of the draw? Um, or are they doing something different? Uh, and that's, that's an important distinction to make. Because oftentimes people will point to Warren Buffett and says, well, Warren Buffett made a, a ton of money. Uh, he, I know he's not a hedge fund, but we're in the case of talking about alpha returns, Warren Buffett uh, is, quote unquote, like the king of, of alpha returns. But his strategy is 
very particular and his strategy is uh is requires a lot of work it requires just a sheer just over a, a, too much work for for the average person and he's rewarded for that work now he's not the average person though and the average person is likely to be also a typical average hedge fund manager and so it kind of makes sense why hedge funds you know might not perform as uh as well and they it, it tends the data tends to show that yeah really they really are uh generating alpha returns at random yeah and i, I think hope that, that i hope that makes sense and i think that tends to be where i fall on the issue as well it's like yep you know people get lucky um hey you know maybe once in a generation there's someone that does truly sort of see the market from a different perspective and they do truly add something of value or or a new way to to define what is going to be um the the best sort of pick of of, of particular stock or, or a way of picking undervalued or overvalued investments but but realistically on average uh, there's a lot of survivorship bias and, and those sort of huge success stories that we talk about. Vicky yep. <laughs> on the um, on the live stream sort of said, uh, uh, "Bit of a rip considering I'm starting an internship at a hedge fund in a week. Uh, you'll be you'll be just fine. Just, just talk a good game and and you'll uh, you'll you'll be great. And put in the work. Just put in the work. Like at the end of the day, your the your reward uh, should be commensurate with the work that you put in. Um, I know that sounds like." That's like uh, work. You know, work. What's that? No, but uh, but more work. of uh, it's like it's like what what's the hurdle that I have to go over to uh, in terms of work? And that's different for everybody, honestly. Uh, so you'll find your you'll find your uh, your route and you'll find your groove. Um, and if you don't, you can always leave. I mean, it's no one's gonna fault you for. I'm, I'm just gonna leaving. plug a book, by the way. Um, if if you want to trade, read Reminiscences of a Stock Operator every year read it every year and also i want to find, make one last thing i'm not plugging passive investing here i'm i tend to be a pretty passive investor however i recognize that there is a role of active uh, investing i particularly like value investing uh quite a bit um and i would highly recommend value investing uh technical analysis is dumb I hate technical um, analysis. I mean, it depends on what you mean by technical <laughs> analysis, right? I know, yeah. Like it's, if we're talking long-term trends, then um, maybe it's not so stupid. More, more like that. A shit ton more of like work. the introductory, like technical analysis, like the oh, real, yeah, yeah. like basic like the, stuff. The whole like looking at a chart and like, oh, it's head and shoulders, or you know, like yeah. whatever other <laughs> bullshit that they say. So, I mean, that, like that, that's candles. yeah. The, uh, yeah, I mean that's shit. There, there's no doubt about that. But but you know. Um, People could learn a lot from, you know, studying um, uh, some, this, some of this the This course I saw segment. on YouTube said if I paid them $5,000, they'd, they'd teach me how to day trade at home and make $10,000 a day. <laughs> yeah. That's bullshit. <laughs> oh, my God, my worldview yeah, is but, you know, no, people like You know, people like Jesse Livermore, like that, that kind of person actually knew how to do TA trading. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, well, and then uh, I'll wrap it up by sort of saying um, because we do want to get onto the the, the the crux of what we're all here for, which is the <laughs> fight. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the the gentle discussion uh, about differing opinions. Um, so basically, the line from Matthew McConaughey in The Wolf of Wall Street is true. Uh, no one knows what a market is going to do, least of all stockbrokers. Yep, you're probably right there. Uh, oh, and one other thing I'll add uh, in terms of passive investing, where I sit on it. Uh, passive investing versus act, active investing versus technical analysis versus value investing, all that sort of stuff, all the different ways and stuff that you can go about, uh, you know, going out there 
I'll add, I'll add this. I mean, I, um, my particular style, for whatever it's worth, uh, and of course, this is not advice. Please don't sue me. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I have never sold a stock in my life. Um, I've never once sold anything. Um, I just buy and and hold. I've never yeah. sold. Uh, I, I've sold. Buy. I've done one trade where I've sold a stock. Same. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Especially I, during a downturn, uh, you really want to hold on and invest for the long term. That's a big, big thing you want to try and do as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. It depends on how much time and experience you have. I mean, it also, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in this crisis, for example, like before this happened about a year ago, I started selling off uh, all of the stocks that had a high debt ratio because uh, I, I, one of the trends that I see in this uh, crisis, and this is not financial advice, don't do what I do. Mm. This is uh, particular to my strategy. Um, I, I've uh, like I'm, I'm quite scared that a lot of companies are not going to be able to service their debt. So mm. this is why the ones like the stocks that I held that had uh, really high debt ratio, I started liquidating. Yeah, this is a yeah. year ago. And in, in, in general, e uh, so so that's that's also my kind of thinking behind everything as well. Um, well you know, I, I view the only market movers to be earnings reports and or the only known market movers to be earnings reports and uh, news. So, um, you and know, Donald Trump tweets. Uh, yeah. And so no, no, <laughs> that's a joke. That's a joke. No, I, and I, I too have never sold a stock in my life. I've sold a, a few stocks, but only because, uh, we were about to work with a company that I was holding shares for. So, uh, can't do that uh, in my line of industry. Um, but you know, trying to pick stocks and, and do that, just not, not my expertise. I, uh, I'm an investment banker. I make trend, I, get transaction fees off the sale of private companies or working with uh, public companies, but uh, you know, spending hours and hours and diving into a 10 K uh, I just don't have time for that. So uh, just long-term investment buy and hold. So uh, not investment advice, of course. So I, I, I take it to another extreme. I just, I literally don't have anything outside of Vanguard funds, just broad market indexes are real <laughs> boring. Oh, uh, wow. Oh, you got to break this crisis then. No, it'll recover. Uh, I mean, actually, to be honest, um, I my portfolio is um, yeah, this is pretty much completely neutral from the crisis. There, uh, like VTS, VGS, um, what's the other one? I V A U, uh, whatever it is that I that I invest in. Uh, the few Vanguard funds are, um, and I like it hurt for a little while. I was just like, yeah, all right, let's keep on investing. Um, and it's kind of just more or less come back. It's it's kind of sitting exactly where it is. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and this, for a and little this, while to kind of look at it, but you know, if you don't, and this, I am, I will give investment advice to everyone uh, here. It's not a strategy, but this is more of, uh, like, if you do actually want to make money investing, is when the market goes down, that's a good time to buy in. And people might be thinking, "Oh, wait a second, it just moved down." Uh, yeah, it did, which means that you can now buy more with the same amount of money that you yeah have. but that assumes that you had liquid capital which that does uh, assume yep you are correct so if, it's not something get... that you generally should have beyond what you actually need right yeah so yep. it, it's uh, it's i wouldn't say it's bad advice it's just not very useful for most people yeah that is that is true but like uh you know for me i got a paycheck and i'm just like hmm, this is a good time to you know take a cut of that paycheck and uh put it towards uh, investing and it's paid off quite a bit yeah, so, yeah one of the big uh, pieces of advice from Jesse Livermore is is exactly this: that you you need to be following the the general trend in the market more so than you need to be following the individual stocks. 
because mm -hmm. chances are if you if you pick 10 stocks chances are that seven or eight of them are probably going to go up uh, no matter what i mean um like over a long time period right so yeah. and, and there, there's lots of experiments that have been done with this like they've I remember um, uh, one case where they had a monkey like pick stocks and it performed just as well as a hedge fund. Uh, there was also somebody who did it with an octopus and like, so it, it's just to say like, yeah, there's definitely a certain, a certain element of, I wouldn't say randomness, more just uh, correlation in the market where the trend is actually more important than the individual stock. Um, but there are also, you know, technical analysis has its place if your portfolio is big enough and you have time for it. Um, like looking at things like if you think there's going to be a corporate debt crisis or you think like before 2008 that you, that you saw, you know, people, people investing too much in, in real estate and like having stupid mortgages with the, you know, with the ninja loans and all of this. Oh God. Um, yeah. I mean, when you see trends like that, there's certain actions that you can take with your portfolio where it actually does make sense to sell certain assets. Um, but, but, you know, it requires a lot of work and, yeah. and, and, and most also, people don't yeah, have the fall, time you can, to do you can sometimes fall victim to, to seeing things that, that just aren't there, that just aren't a, aren't a problem at all. Um, well, that's the other level. Like, yes, if, if, you if, might if be right about what and, you might be right so about the trend you're seeing, but maybe your timing is wrong and then you're just as wrong as if you're totally wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. <laughs> Great case. Yes. Um, all right. Now let's get on to um, the debate. So, so Peter um, has sort of sat here pretty, uh, pretty quietly, and um, and thanks for sort of, uh, sort of working through the, the main part of, of this, which was, of course, the discussion about the, the video that went up um, on Thursday, which was hedge funds. Um, no, it's fun to listen to. Good. The inner workings of it, but um, yeah, the reason I brought you on was um, because I want to have sort of a, a real debate, and, and I know um, we've got a lot of people here that sort of represent, um, you know, a, a relatively diverse range of, of economic schools of thought, uh, even if they don't sort of subscribe to one particularly, uh, and that it kind of particularly comes around. Um, you know, the way that I've represented uh, things like saving and, and the effect that has on the economy. So we're talking real macroeconomic stuff now. Um, so it's time to um, da -da 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 duel, I guess, and uh, and discuss this. So I open up to a general debate. And I th the first thing I want to have is um, the role of savings. Now, this is something that I've received a lot of flack about for potentially oversimplifying. Uh, or, you know, hey, look, I'll be the first to maybe admit it, um, misrepresenting. Now, uh, my argument is that um, policymakers, uh, you know, uh, be it federal governments or state governments, federal banks, people that sort of make decisions about the, um, the general well-being of an economy, um, they, they tend to have a sort of a negative outlook on people um, saving cash. Now, this is something that's caused a lot of controversy uh, amongst people because they sort of say, well, that's not necessarily the case. Um, one of the throwaway lines from a video I don't know if it was, um, do we need recessions? Actually, no, will this be the next Great Depression is, uh, you know, it's fuck savers. No one likes savers during these sorts of times because um, they are, you know, sort of just sitting on top of capital that could otherwise be used to, uh, you know, fund businesses or, uh, you know, provide simulation to, to the local economy or, or even invested into something that is going to, um, you know, yeah, build build the economy and 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 get things sort of moving again. Uh, if we go into an economic downturn and everyone gets scared and everyone saves their money, well, 
then nobody is going to, um, you know, no one's going to be out there sort of stimulating the economy, so to say. Now, people um, obviously sort of take some issue to this because it is one of those things where um, the actual role of saving is is quite complex in, in the economy. Now, my argument is, um, especially um, in, in the short to medium term, which tends to be uh, the case for, for economic crisis, you know, crises, um, they tend to last, you know, sort of kind of the effects of them from, you know, anywhere from two to, to five years. Uh, and that's sort of what we'd normally consider sort of, you know, short to medium term and in a macroeconomic sense. Um, but yeah, savings um, is is something that does have sort of a somewhat negative kind of side effect. Um, but of course, uh, that is something that's incredibly controversial and that sort of um, potentially my sort of uh, old-fashioned Keynesian showing because I know that there are people that, that heavily disagree with this. So, Peter, what I'll do is I'll let you sort of uh, make your argument just like you did on on your your video, um, sort of that I recognised you for doing. And, and I do recommend that people go out and watch uh, your videos as well because I think they're they're quite good. Um, and then we can sort of go on from there because I know uh, Matthias agrees with you, and I don't know if there's anyone that agrees with me here, but um, that's all right. That's all part of the fun where we're here to sort of have a discussion and, and become smarter from it. So, so take it away, Peter. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, look, my thing is um, savings is one of those things where it's a little bit hard to conceptualize, or it can be. And certainly it's a, a paradox or the um, yeah, paradox of saving, you know, where if, if everyone is trying to save at the same time, then no one saves. And you're like, hmm, how is that possible? And then you sort of work through it and you obviously realize, okay, I'm saving. How am I saving? I'm consuming less. Okay. If I'm consuming less, you know, it's not a problem for me personally to consume less. It doesn't matter to the economy. It doesn't matter to the Australian economy. Uh, if many hundreds of thousands of us are well, okay. That's the problem. And so, like, you get this issue where, okay, everyone wants to save more. Everyone consumes less. But obviously, if everyone's consuming less, that's less income going into someone else. You're working for someone. You're working for some sort of business. If that business is getting less income, well, that's obviously less money that they can pay you and so on. And so in that sense, um, clearly saving more in that sense is bad. Uh, one thing uh, which I didn't mention in my video and uh, which I'll obviously have to sort of understand a bit better, but basically there's uh, what they call, I think, the golden savings rate or golden ratio of savings, something to that effect. And basically uh, you have a point at which, you know, you've got a trade-off between savings and consumption. You save too much, you can't consume as much. Uh, you consume too much, you can't save as much. And it's not necessary, and well, it's almost not universally not true that you know you want to be right in the middle. Uh, you want to save as much as humanly possible and stuff, um, because there's just certain uh, areas where we definitely just do want more consumption, and we definitely do actually want, um, yeah, in that sense, less saving. And so I don't think any nation in the world. Um, ever has, or probably ever will be, like sort of in that. I think there was Goldilocks sort of um, area, the, the golden ratio. Um, but in terms of like uh, savings as sort of a macro sort of issue, unless your money is literally um, in cash, um, you know, you've got like ten thousand, hundred thousand, or whatever, um, literally under your bank, uh, under your bank, under your bed, or like in your house or something. And I've known people uh, who've done that before, like amounts of money, but Unless your money is that, inevitably, especially if you're um, in a country which has uh, fairly strong institutions and like really wide 
banking sector and all that, your money is being used. Uh, if you if you have your money in the bank, um, $20,000, dollars $30,000, $40,000, $50,000, uh, you, can, you can guarantee that the bank is using your money. Uh, the, the bank is not doing it for charity reasons. Um, the bank, you know, is not taking your money because it's something cool to do. It's and even if let's say let's say hypothetically, even if the bank gives you zero percent on your savings, and in some and actually in Europe and other places, um, some of the returns are negative, even though that's not passed on to the smaller savers. But um, yeah, you can guarantee even if the bank was to pay out nothing to you, they would still use the money. And how they're using that money? Well, they're investing somewhere in the economy. And so that's where you get that uh, classic uh, thing you might have seen, the uh, S equals I, you know, savings equals investment um, identity. Uh, because in the aggregate, savings um, equal the investment in the economy. And, yeah, so that's in, the, that's in the sense that, yes, we do want to increase savings. And it's interesting because you guys had brought up uh, the global financial crisis when talking about um, the hedge funds earlier. And one of the things, actually, one of the big theories behind the global financial crisis is that there was essentially a savings glut, like surplus savings around the world, and they had nowhere to go. And the US being the biggest um, economy in the world, or I think second now to China, but you know, it's the safest, got the best institutions, and you want to invest in the US. But you know, how are you going to do that? Okay, well, you're going to get, invest in treasuries, but the only way you can invest in treasuries if the U.S. government creates treasuries, and so then the U.S. government doesn't want to because that's debt for the U.S. government, and so the private sector steps in. That's where you get your mortgage-backed securities and so on, and so that is definitely a sense in which uh, savings can actually be bad <laughs> because those savings, instead of going into their host countries, uh, instead of, for example, like you know, instead of investing in China, for example, they're investing in the U.S. But Everyone wanted to do that. Everyone wanted to invest in the U.S. And well, in, so in that sense, um, increased savings were pretty bad. Um, and that obviously yeah, led. It was one of the things that led, of course, to the crisis. Um, but I just thought, like you know, specifically talking about your video, I think I just thought, you know, I understand that was your conclusion and such, and I sort of did hone in on your conclusion. I just felt like it was a little bit too glib, I guess. Uh, that you know the economic theories sort of despise or dislike uh, savings. Um, that's sort of in that I think sense. That's I why actually I actually disagree in, even more radically than you do, Peter, because like the uh, one of the examples that you brought up, um, you know, with people putting uh, money under their beds, for example. Um, mm -hmm. If you think about the nature of money, mo money is not a commodity like oil, for example, where if it's just sitting around, it's uh, you know, uh, you're, you're missing uh, resources in the economy effectively of what you could have. Where, mm -hmm. When people decide to save, even if they put it under a mattress, what happens is that the purchasing power, because, it, you know, the supply of goods remains the same in that moment. So the purchasing power of everybody else's money increases. So even mm -hmm. if people are hoarding money under the bed, it doesn't actually affect the economy on a, on a macroeconomic level. I, I, I just don't buy that conclusion at all, even, even at that point. I think um, basically what you're signaling when there's hundreds of thousands of people that decide to do that is that I don't know if I was doing that. I don't know what uh, to invest in right now. Um, and 
other people that might um, you know have an idea about what what's going to actually you know yield some kind of supply that people are going to want to spend money on if their purchasing power is increased it means that it becomes cheaper for them to make that decision so and, and like also uh, with regards to the financial crisis where it, like some people say that it was save a savings gluttony I, I don't I don't believe that's the case either. I think it's a um, it's a, a, a mischaracterization of, of what caused the crisis in the first place. I, I think that um, the reason that you had the the contraction of of consumption and, and investment was because there'd been malspending and malinvestment. Uh, it's basically that people have uh, they recognize because they're not earning as much money anymore. Um, they recognize that maybe they bought some wrong th wrong things. Maybe they've invested in some wrong things, and now they're pulling capital out into into cash. Um, and then then you need a, a reallocation of resources in the economy, and that's effectively what a recession is, right? So it, a recession is just uh, like the market recognizing, oh shit, we've invested in a bunch of, of bad things. Like we could take the example of like. Uh, when uh, Scotland twice in a row invested uh, most of their savings into the Panama Canal project and failed both times. Like that's a classic example of misallocation of capital. Um, and after that, of course, you're going to have a depression because people have spent money on something that they shouldn't have been spending money on. They've effectively they've allocated resources that were available to them through the use of their money to wrong things. And then you need a reshuffling where the people that then did not make that mistake. They now need to acquire all of these resources from the people that uh, that made the wrong investments. That now need capital to service their debt and consume and whatever whatever else they need the money for. So it, it's what's causing this problem is not that people decide to do that. The the cost of people deciding to do that is the cause of this crisis. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Oh, and like of course you have um, in the U.S. actually pretty recently. The past like probably month or so, you have an uptick in the savings rate, and of course that's a bad sign uh, because you know people are less um, uh, feeling feeling less secure uh, about the future, and so you know they're scurrying to try and save more now. Um, my question then would be in terms of like the, the crisis, if like you know when we think about the people like the vast financial machine uh, that was required to securitize, let's say mortgage-backed securities, just to take the example everyone knows like my reading on the literature is that they knew the risks like the risks of like the mortgage-backed securities and the hey, mutual hey, loans and stuff they didn't a lot of uh, investors did not understand these the risks of these um and even institutions themselves did not understand uh a lot of people on wall street didn't understand these things at least that's my perception of it that's what i've uh came away from reading um but I'd even if they see, didn't I'd understand love to see that, literature, that, though. that is a misunderstanding of how to allocate capital, right? Say, say it again? It, even if they didn't understand the risks, that's exactly the sort of lesson that you should be taught. Like if you're investing in something that you don't understand the risks of, you should be taught a lesson by losing money. <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise oh, you're just going to have them doing it again. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's an important lesson, which is why people should read history and follow history because you can learn lessons from other other people's mistakes. I mean, now, um, what I want to come back with, and 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 um, one of the sort of the things that I want to postulate to you is, 
uh, is, is I actually had a look over bad economics and I find that they're very, um, they take a very sort of academically rigorous approach to economics. And, and oftentimes I find that academic economics is, is unfortunate because it makes a lot of assumptions. Um, and a lot of those assumptions just, just genuinely just don't apply to, to the real world, um, especially, you know, in the sort of timeframes that we're kind of looking at. And I think timeframes are a really important thing to understand here. Now, uh, in general, I agree with the, the theory of general allocation of resources, you know, effective allocation of resources is, is what's going to, in the long term, determine good, successful economies from poor, um, you know, unsuccessful economies. Um, that is something that I completely buy into. But in the short term, uh, my argument is that the governments, um, you know, and institutions like reserve banks um, dislike people saving money. And uh, that is because um, there are a few sort of things to, to peel apart here. Um, short term, you know, over the kind of time period that we're looking at a recession, that is going to negatively impact the economy. Uh, it is going to mean that businesses go out of business. It is going to mean that through, you know, potentially no fault of their own, um, you know, they're just not going to have the, uh, the capital to keep on to keep on operating. And that might not be because they um, were misallocated anyway. That might not be because they weren't providing genuine value. That might just be because um, people are sort of far less, you know, sort of lackadaisical with their with their consumption of, of goods and services. So when we hear about um, people saving more, um, it's really a question of, well, is this something that is, is saving what's causing this downturn? Is people sort of hoarding more cash? Um, you know, what's, what's causing this downturn? Or is it just a sign of the downturn that people are sort of scared? Uh, and that's just sort of something that comes out. Now, I would argue um, that it is something that is a, it, it's what's causing it. Um, at least over the sort of timeframes that, that uh, economic recessions tend to happen over. Now, to Matthias's point, um, he sort of argued that, um, well, of course, you know, um, you know, all those people sort of saving money means that the, the value of, um, you know, the people that, that do want to invest, you know, they have sort of more buying power because, um, hey, you know, things go on sale. Stocks massively fall in value during these sorts of time periods. Um, general stuff goes goes on sale like even if it is that you if, if you're wanting to invest in a uh, a company or if you're wanting to invest in some kind of uh you know fund or if you're wanting to invest in i don't know some new barbecue grill with uh 16 burners and a and a, and a beer fridge on the side all of those uh all of those sorts of um products i could i guess you could call them are going to be cheaper during a recession right stocks are going to go on sale effectively because their price is going to fall um, that, that, that sort of monstrosity of some consumer good is going to go on sale because businesses are struggling to sell their goods. So, so normally they have sort of sales during these more turbulent times to, to encourage sort of what little um, spending that they can attract. Uh, and that is, you know, how can I get this point? Uh, a, a time where these people that still um, do have the ability and or the, uh, the propensity to go out and, and consume or invest um, you know, can kind of get away with with making some really prudent investments, and and normally those sorts of people that do, still do have the ability um, to invest or consume are people that are, you know, a little bit more rational, or a little bit more, or a little bit smarter, or uh, a little bit, you know, sort of more productive because they are still in a position where they can spend this money during a downturn. 
Um, and that's something, yeah, it's an interesting theory, but I think what the takeaway here is that happens long-term. The other, the other big assumption is um, savings equals investment. Uh, it's a really, really interesting one to your point where, you know, financial institutions, um, you know, there's, there's a relatively small amount of money that's actually genuinely saved under people's mattresses, right? Um, most logical people that have more than about you know, sort of $5,000 to save, the kind of people that are going to actually have an impact on the economy, they save it in banks. Uh, and the idea is that, of course, the banks can take these savings um, and then, you know, go out and invest it because that's what banks do. You know, they, they take people's savings and they, they write mortgages with it or they invest it into a market or they um, they produce some kind of product where they can get a return on, on that money that's saved with them and, uh, you know, they pocket the difference. And, um, and that's a really nice idea. Um, the reality is oftentimes a bit different than that, uh, especially during these more turbulent times where banks themselves uh, are sometimes just as uncertain. They want to shore up their liquidity. So oftentimes they will. Um, they'll either just sort of sit on the cash or, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll buy government bonds. It doesn't necessarily go to something where they're going to, um, you know, be in, in this sort of really fantastic position to, to be investing or, or sort of moving money about the economy. So uh, I do like, um, I do like the counter argument, but uh, I would still sort of stand by, um, you know, my, my, my very adept hypothesis of fuck savers during an economic downturn. Long term, though, I'm a huge fan of saving. I am. Um, I believe it's sort of the, the role of saving in the economy um, is, is, of course, you know, it, it allocates investments and, um, you know, people having saving sort of long term leads to, uh, you know, allocation of resources and productive potential and, you know, providing our, um, you know, unlimited desires with the limited resources that we have. At a, you know, that's, that's the role of an economy at the end of the day. Um, but when we're talking about it in a recession, um, it, it's bad uh, in, oh. in sort of retrospect. What now, do you think about the, the idea that if you fuck your savers, uh, foreign savers are going to win instead? Well, I mean, it's one of those things, right? Uh, is, is it something that um, that's, that's sort of ultimately the, the role of government to say, oh, okay, well, look, you know, someone abroad has to um you know sort of follow our kind of rhetoric here and yeah i mean obviously there's the the idea that oh you know look if we um discourage people from saving then then someone else that's much better at saving is going to be able to, to come over here and, and maybe invest in our economy and uh look i think that's that's a maybe sort of a, a bit of an argument that that the actual impacts of that are um smaller than what we would sort of rationally see um but uh, the things to take away here is, of course, you know, there are examples like China, they, you know, are really, really good at saving and, and people see it as a huge issue that they're coming in and, you know, investing in buying up government bonds or, or, or whatever that may be. Um, I would argue the actual impact of that uh, on an economy is relatively minimal. And even if it is the case, you know, there, there's some sort of social impacts of it, like, you know, hey, maybe it makes housing very expensive or, um, you know, maybe it sort of gives them control over, over uh, markets that we don't want them to have control over or whatever it may be, um, but the actual Sorry. impact I on think, the overall I think prosperity. it's inevitably going to teach savers to save in foreign currency. In the sense that you think, um, yeah. you know, fuck savers will, will lead to inflation? 
or a they, I mean, they offer comparative a inflation appraisal. compared to a country that that doesn't fuck its savers. Uh, I I would say I mean like that's a general trend that people have been pushing for of, inter of diversifying uh, internationally. It's something that I am interested in myself, uh, not because uh, I'm afraid that I'm going to get screwed over, um, but more of because I know like the benefits of diversifying abroad, um, and so having uh, my wealth in multiple currencies. You know, it doesn't seem like a good idea until it absolutely is a good idea. Like, when in, in the case of like what what uh, Matthias is is saying. Well, well I mean, um, you, you can look at a country like Argentina, where you like they're they're a bit further along in this process than we are in the West, right? But um, I mean, that effectively, nobody and like no nobody who's rich in Argentina wants to hold Argentina and pesos. Oh, of course not. No. So. No. <laughs> uh, if I could just add, you know, kind of what my take on, on all this discussion, um, you know, just in general, I guess you could say that um, in one way, I, I agree with with both of you. Um, and that is, you know, the general, I would say, macroeconomic trend would generally suggest that aggregate savings is aggregate investment. Right. So the uh, you know, the banks put that capital to work. But from just following the 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 uh, the flow of funds just in the current uh, economic crisis, you remember this is a little different from 2008. In 2008, we had a financial crisis. This one is more so related to the real economy. Hmm. And so, when you have when when banks already a little reluctant to you know put out cash because some of these companies are are a little you know, pretty concerned about uh, deploying, or I'm sorry, some of these banks are concerned about whether or not they'll get paid back on that capital. They're a little reluctant to uh, put put loans out there. And so obviously, you know, they're, they're fine with doing mortgage-backed securities. Um, the, you know, the low interest rates, they're seeing a lot of refinancings and, refinancings, and that's great. Um, but at the same time, commercial lines of credit where they're really making their money um, it, it's there be, and because of, if you recall in 2008, uh, regulators were very, very, very harsh to, to, to clamp down on banks. Um, they, you know, banks don't want that same sort of scrutiny again, right? They still want to have at least some leverage where they can make good spreads and good money. So, uh, I, I would say with, with the current situation, and maybe this is way, a way to look at it in the short term. The flow of funds from from my observation is uh, the savings with, with the, uh, uh, the the current stimulus or at least the loans that the banks are primarily making to companies are through uh, the SBA or the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP. Um, and then for the mortgage backed security refinancings, that's kind of, you know, the other big space. But commercial lines of credit. I, I, you know, they're just far less less common right now, and so what banks are doing instead is they're using that money to buy those um, those treasury bonds that uh, you know the the new issued treasury bonds that uh, uh, Mnuchin just put out, which are is surprising to me because they have very very low real interest rates. I mean, the fact that somebody would buy those anyway, uh, I mean, it blows my mind. But if you consider their opportunity cost, they don't want to put that money to work in a company where they don't know. Uh, if you know they'll pay that loan back, so um, yeah, and, and treasury, treasury bonds to to a bank, 
um, just for people that might not be aware. It is basically the equivalent um, of a, a financial institution. Um, say it's like a savings account for a financial institution. They're not really going to just see a, re a real return on it. Sometimes they might even see a negative real return on on and saving in a treasury bond. But um, you or I, mere mortals, if we want to sort of keep some cash, we'll we'll go stick it in our bank account for a financial institution. If they want to sort of hold on to some cash, they'll they'll mm. go and buy treasury bonds. So it's very yeah, these are what we call liquid. Yeah, yeah, for those who aren't in uh, finance, this is what we call like you know having liquid securities, uh, things that are are pretty much cash. They can so, be converted to cash very easily. Right. And, and when you follow that, when you follow the flow of funds there, it's the new issuance. So that's the cash that's going into maybe, you know, funding the uh, paychecks for everybody, the, the stimulus checks, right? That's the new bond issuance to get the cash in order to fund all that. The problem you run into is, you know, the Federal Reserve Chairman, does he want that to be the sort of economic stimulus that, that we're talking about? Or does he want that money to be coming out of, let's say, you know, not the treasury bonds, but more so the cash that was already in others' bank accounts to be spending in the real economy. Because remember, this is a real economy crisis, less so a financial crisis. And I would argue that it would be money wanting to be spent in the, you know, in the real economy, going out buying food that's not necessarily coming from the new bond issuance. Um, what, what makes you say, sorry, that this is a real economy crisis and not a financial crisis? Well, because with the Federal Reserve quantitative easing activities, uh, I mean, they're, they're doing just about everything to make sure banks are well capitalized and well liquid. Um, and, you know, with, with the 2008 financial crisis, it was really, really a, 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 a strap on liquidity. Um, and with the mortgage-backed securities quantitative easing, although in 2008, I would argue that they're a little lit, late to the game. I would say that they are ahead of the curve in this case. Um, so, um, okay, so you're, you're saying that um, even though companies can't get a hold of liquidity right now, yeah, it's some, some. it's not a liquidity crisis. Yeah, uh, companies I'm, can't get liquidity. <laughs> financial institutions. Well, no, financial come on, man. It's it's come it's, on. No, 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 no. So the liquidity crisis is in reference mm -hmm. to the uh, financial institutions, less so the the companies. And that's an interesting theory as well, um, the idea of crowding out uh, when we see, uh, especially in these sorts of, uh, you know, uh, examples where, where banks, financial, you know, normal commercial retail banks are, you know, ultimately responsible for, for giving cash to, to mere mortals like me and, and even institutions like, I don't know, General Motors or Ford or Apple or, um, you know, whatever supermarket chain it is or, or whatever it may be. Um, they are, you know, sort of ultimately, you know, relying on on things like, you know, lines of credit um, for a lot of companies. They basically live on a giant credit card, um, which is issued by banks. Now, if banks don't want to give it to them, we can have sort of a liquidity crisis for, um, you know, uh, we can have a liquidity crisis for for institutions like uh, like Matthias said there, where it's like the regular companies mm -hmm. um, are kind of struggling for cash. Um, whereas banks have sort of too much of it because they don't want to give it to, um, you know, they don't want to give it to General Motors. They don't want to give it to Ford. They don't want to give that money to, you know, whatever it is, you know, mum and pop businesses because they're not sure about what's going to happen. They want to be like, they're, they're kind of, banks are just as scared as you and I are right now. They're going, oh shit, you know, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to be in a, in a situation where I'm caught with my pants down like I was in 2008. I'm just going to put it into some super safe investments. Government treasury bonds will do that. And the, the issuance of, of all of these government treasury bonds to fund stimulus uh, can sometimes have a, a negative effect because it effectively crowds out uh, the market for, for capital. 
Uh, if there's an unlimited supply of treasury bonds available for these banks to put their money in, they'll go, you know what, I'm going to go put it in that as opposed to giving it to some you know, shop that I'm not sure if it's ever going to open again after this because it's just a safer investment. If there wasn't the issue of treasury bonds, they go, oh, okay, well, there's nowhere to stick my money. I guess I'm going to have to write that loan. I guess I'm going to have to uh, offer a line of credit to some sort of business because I've got nowhere else to sort of use it, um, which is a really interesting sort of theory. Um, and I just the way I see it, what's happened over the past, like since 2008, is that uh, too much cheap credit has been given out and that has led to malinvestment. And because there's been so much malinvestment and because companies are so highly leveraged right now, uh, obviously banks are uh, uh, not going to be lending the money because the, the risk of default and them not being able to service that debt is so high because they're yeah. so highly leveraged. And then, and of course, you're going to get a liquidity crisis in uh, in uh, the corporate space. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, it's just obvious. And yeah. I, I don't understand how you can say it's not a liquidity crisis when it, the problem is literally they're missing liquidity. Well, I'm not I, I'm not arguing it's not a liquidity crisis for, for companies. When I was saying that, it, I was talking about it's not a financial crisis in terms of kind of the oiled machines being the banks of the financial, uh, you know, uh, financial institutions in general. Uh, I would say it's fine, but you know the uh, fisc there, there is fiscal policy right now that is designed to help companies you know stay well uh, stay liquid, and that's through the Paycheck Protection Program. Okay. Uh, okay. But what happens? What happens when corporate debt start uh, like when you start seeing uh, uh, widespread defaults in corporate debt? What, then. You, I, banks don't want to let obviously when you see widespread they banks are highly that. leveraged in corporate debt yeah I, I agree so, with you okay so this is a financial crisis but yeah. we're in the middle of it well it's, it's not, not a financial... played out yet right when, when i'm saying when we talk about financial crises i i generally lend that to be a term associated with capital providers less so companies when i'm when i'm talking about a real economy I'm talking more so about the companies themselves. So when we, we, we talk about liquidity, you know, that term can apply to companies and banks, right? Uh, I can talk about uh, General Motors and their ability uh, to have cash on hand to fund operations, and they could be in a liquidity crunch themselves. Um, but when, when I'm talking about a financial crisis, I'm talking about the distinguishment, just to be clear, of uh, companies in general, and then banks, the capital providers. Okay, but a financial crisis in uh, like broad definition is just when there's uh, situations where you know financial assets suddenly lose a large part of their nominal value. Sure, that's the normative definition, right? Uh, I mean, I, I suspect that when we start having corporate, uh, you know, corporate debt defaults, we're going to see. Um, both the companies that, that default obviously lose a large part of their nom if not all of their nominal value. Um, and, um, uh, and then as a result of that, all of the banks that are highly leveraged in corporate debt, they're going to also see their shares uh, uh, fall significantly in value. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, you know, and again, I would say that uh, for the Federal Reserve in a way to kind of design this and going off this point was, if you recall recently, they bought a, a variety of bonds out of ETFs in order to increase the price, lower the yield to make it easier to refinance with the low interest rate environment. So 
um, you know, the whole idea there is to maybe make it easier for the banks to service, I'm sorry, the companies to service that. Um, so with, with what the Federal Reserve is doing with banks, I would say is keeping them well, well liquid to make sure that the financial system is still running. But, you know, I do agree with you that it's a liquidity crisis also, too, with with uh, um, companies. Now, we can disagree on, on, you know, where that definition kind of overlaps and and, and that's OK. But just I, I think we agree on the mechanics and I think that's the important part. Can I just uh, jump in? I was just going to say. So what Compounder Daily said earlier um, was that, you know, this is different from 2008. And that's exactly the case. It's that right now we're forcing companies to shut down like they have to shut down they have no choice it's and we're doing it whether or not you feel the shutdown is misguided or not it's sort of beside the point it's already happened and so we're forcing companies shut down and so obviously you know they shut down production shut down machinery workers get by this all that kind of stuff and so because of that you know they don't have income you know previously they have this income to service their debt and before their debt might have been manageable but now it's not specifically because we have shut down the, um, the economy on purpose. And, and that, of course, has then led to or is leading to now a liquidity issue. And the problem we're facing now, um, I don't know if it's that much of an issue with how many central banks, but especially with the Fed, it's a big issue that because, yes, banks are now not lending out as much, they're not um, in the business making as many loans, the Fed is doing that. The problem, of course, with the Fed doing that is that we then have this sort of private public institution that's then allocating credit. And that's obviously not what we want. We want private banks to do that, or just private institutions in general. And I wonder how much how much of a problem this is going to be going into the future if they're going to start picking favorites, if they're going to start picking companies to save and companies to let go. And like, you know, if it's going to come down to that, if this crisis gets any deeper, as the Fed starts handling more. Uh, credit allocation uh, rather than banks, and what you know, what's that going to do to the macro economy? Yeah, well, I think um, my, my my ultimate sort of um, takeaway from this is is I'm going to be annoying, um, and and I am going to to sit on the fence in, in regards to what kind of crisis we're in now, um, which is I think we're in both. Now, obviously, there's the very very direct, very blatant, obvious impact of the fact that. Um, businesses just can't operate. You know, if you're a restaurant, I'm sorry, you can't supply food. So we're in a, you know, sort of a supply side crisis uh, in a sense as well that, you know, even if we had the demand, we just don't have the supply to, to facilitate that demand. Um, but we're also, of course, in, in a sort of a you know, demand side crisis in the sense that people uh, don't want to, to go out and spend. Now, I think... What this is all going to do is is uncover a larger issue of the fact that yeah, um, one of the reasons that I made the video, um, which I think caused a, a, a bit of controversy as well, will this be the next Great Depression? Is that we're kind of going to get hit from both sides here. Um, the supply side crisis, I actually, I genuinely believe, um, you know, it would suck, but it wouldn't be a huge deal. It wouldn't be something that's absolutely devastating to a lot of people if we weren't in this sort of um, you know, debt crisis. The idea that, you know, on a, on a sort of microeconomic level, we have people living paycheck to paycheck, landlords living, you know, rental payment to rental payment, uh, you know, institutions that are sort of got, you know, one month of operating capital on hand, if that. Um, 
if we do, yeah, I mean, we've question. never been this highly leveraged in history. Like, if yeah. you look at corporate debt debt ratios, uh, if you look thirty years back, even debt ratios used to be between zero point two and zero point three. Now they're between zero point six and zero point zero point seven. Hmm. It's just it's we're in a situation now. It's uh, it's almost unbelievable in the sense that no one can afford to to get off the treadmill even for a second. Um, you know, from from you know, individuals that are just sort of working working minimum wage jobs to to, to billion dollar institutions. Um, there's very few with the kind of capacity to to just go. Okay, you know what? We're going to take a little break for a little while. That's going to be fine. We'll kick up where we left off. We'll pick up sorry where we left off. Uh, you know, in three or four months' time after everyone comes out of hibernation, we just really can't afford to do that because of the the incredible sort of level of debt that we find ourselves in. Um, and I think you know the actual supply side crisis. Yeah, you know that, that's going to suck. You know, people can't get their you know uh, people can't go out for a restaurant meal or I don't know get their whatever it is that that people buy these days um you know for a few few times and, and that you know is sort of a detriment to the ultimate end goal of a society or of an economy rather which is to provide its participants with good genuine economic you know quality of life which normally is the consumption of goods and services as it relates to an economy um but that's fine you know you, if we weren't in a debt crisis we could we could come back from that it's like okay you know i have to go out for for a little while and you know maybe that'll sort of lead to a period of negative growth but it's okay because we can come back from it and we can kind of pick up and get started but because we are sort of lurching um you know literally the entire economy is living paycheck to paycheck um that's why it's going to be uh, pretty devastating uh and i think um and maybe that has something to do with the the fact that we've been giving them uh, cheap debt for for just for decades now right yeah and uh, something probably something to do with the fact that uh you know on a company level obviously they have access to cheap cheap uh, cheap credit uh, on an individual level um same, same sort of thing as well and also you know there's just not the incentive to save uh, which is where I think, you know, the, the role of actual saving is, is all sort of in hindsight. I think if we genuinely encourage people to save, we would have a bit more of a buffer in these kind of situations. Um, you know, I, I, it kind of sounds like a bit of a weird flex, um, so don't take it the wrong way, but do you know how stressed I am about this crisis? Not at all. If worse comes to worse, if I lose, if I lose my job, and, and, you know, hypothetically, let's say, I don't know, all my subscribers drop to zero because bad economics called me out and everyone unsubscribes from economics explained and I don't have any income for, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for the, for the next two years, uh, I'll be fine. I have cash reserves to do that. Um, that's probably a very, very conservative approach to take. But there are a lot of people, you know, even financial professionals that I speak to that are like, yeah, man, if I don't get my next paycheck, I'm probably not going to be able to pay my rent or my mortgage or whatever it may be. And you're like, this is terrifying and we're not talking about minimum wage employees here we're talking about uh, very very highly paid professionals that just don't have the incentive to to save um because you know that you don't get anything for saving anymore i think that's something um here's a black pill by the way from your local black pill merchant merchant it even if we bail everybody out again we're going to be the exact <clears throat> the exact same place in 10 years or 8 to 12 years and it's just going to be even worse yeah yeah, and I think that is the role of saving. Um, of course, you know, saving in long term, you know, leads to investment through financial institutions, and you know, a strong savings tends to also um, it, it, it kind of channels in investment into um, you know companies to provide them liquidity to do their business, and it's all it's all great and it's fantastic. And uh, and Peter, you're you're exactly right. 
it, it's all about the length of time, though. Uh, and in short term, oftentimes you find the reason that governments and institutions hate savers is because um, banks do effectively the same thing. They save and they hoard wealth and it doesn't go to something that's actually productive. It doesn't actually genuinely go into these sorts of investments. It, uh, it goes into places where it's not actually sort of contributing actively to a society. But I think the role of saving is, is in hindsight. It's about making sure that we encourage people to save so that when we do hit this bump in the road, we've got a little bit of a buffer there. People can go, okay, you know what? You know, it's, it's three months worth of stuff. If I lose my job, okay, no worries. I, I've got a bit of a, you know, savings rate. It's not great. You know, I prefer not to lose my job, but it's okay. You know, I'll, I'll it, write it out. One of the things uh, that, I mean, like people should be incentivized to save even if there isn't uh, an additional benefit to saving. Yeah, like if you yeah. put if you put money away uh, or loan it to a bank and they're just going to effectively sit on it. Now, I know that's not what they're going to do, but imagine from your perspective, if you're not making any return on it, you should still save because you want that rainy day fund. Yes, it didn't yeah. grow like you could have used it for something else like, you know, go and buy extra burgers at McDonald's or uh, wherever your favorite uh, fast food places or, you know, splurge on uh, a, a buying that new gaming computer or whatever you want to spend your money on. Uh, instead of doing that, like maybe just have that cash reserve. Just here's, have it. Here's another argument for it as well. Now, we, we, we make it sound like um, these people have been idiots. And I think in the, the case of my colleagues and uh, in my space, they, they probably are being idiots, to be honest. But even if we take a super rational... Um, you know, really switched on participant in an economy. Um, you know, let's say a relatively wealthy individual with good income and, and they, they want to sort of save and invest it to build their future prosperity. Um, it's not even so much the um, the disincentive for saving. And I think that, that, that tends to be sort of at the lower levels, um, but it's also the, the draw of taking on debt. Right now in Australia, I can go and get a home loan um, at 2% interest some of the more competitive banks, they'll, they'll, they'll give me a home loan for, for 2% per year. Uh, and I think in the United States, correct me if I'm wrong, um, you know, fixed interest loans are, are even lower than that. Uh, is that is that the case? Am I, am I sort of misinformed there? I'm not looking for a home, so I can't tell you. <laughs> ah, on, in in Denmark, there is actually, if you have good a, a good credit rating, there is actually some banks that will give you negative interest. Yeah, it's insane. So you'd have to think to yourself, it's like, why wouldn't I take on debt to invest? Why wouldn't I? It's it would be almost dumb not to, uh, to the point where you know I'm I'm one of those individuals that tends to despise debt. I'm literally taking advantage of this. I'm like, okay, you know what? Uh, we're going to see a downturn in the market. I have the ability to take on debt. I'm probably going to borrow about two million dollars um, and and invest it because it's like, well, geez, if it's if it's two percent return, like realistically inflation comes close to that if we're in a situation where we're going to have high inflation debt is a good way to hedge against inflation uh it really leverages my my asset position i'd be dumb not to and that means hey potentially if if something like this came around again uh, i'd have my ass out on the line because i'd have two million dollars in debt um so it's kind of one of those things where low interest rates are great but it's not something that you should keep where it is for for as long as we have um at least that's my sort of two cents I just wanted to, to jump like an Austrian. <laughs> yeah, I know you're, you're having an impact on me. It's, it's disgusting. Uh, uh, I just, I, yeah, I just want to jump in. And just say uh, it's one thing. One thing I've come to appreciate, because I've lived in Australia my entire life. Uh, I wasn't born here, but I've been living here my entire life. And one thing I've come to appreciate about Australia is 
the government effectively forces you to save uh, superannuation is compulsory. And, and it's like something like 9.5% obviously varies per employer. But that's the thing where it sort of, it takes away, you know, purchasing power from you right now, but like it forces you to save for the future. Because, you know, it just, they just recognize that people are not particularly great at saving for the future. And so the government was like, okay, we're going to force that. And it's worked out like quite well. And yeah, people obviously now retiring were like, okay, I'm glad that my purchasing power was taken away from me when I was younger. Because now at least I have money now, like to, to retire. Okay, obviously retiring literally right now, not the best due to the crisis. But like in a normal time, um, being forced in that sense to save, I think has been a really good policy for Australia. Um, it's worked out really well. Especially since, uh, especially since most of us are idiots and, and we wouldn't save for our retirement if it was up to mm-hmm. our own volition. I think it, you're absolutely right. I think superannuation mm-hmm. um, policies are, are, are an absolute godsend for Australia because, yeah. uh, my yep. goodness gracious me, in my industry, I get to work with a vast, a vast array of people from, you know, super intelligent investors to, um, to people that have just found themselves in a, an absolute hole um, of financial catastrophe. And I'm like, you know what, the, the, the people that I, that I find that are in absolutely dire straits are... Uh, are far more prevalent than people that are actually genuinely switched on. So I think it is a good, uh, good thing to have. Um, can now, I ask? Uh, or, uh, can I answer a question? Um, the the uh, negative, from negative their... interest rate for home loans. How does that work? Right. Exactly. I, I was just yeah, going I, to I'm tell. Uh, so Ludovic oh, yeah. asked um, uh, negative in. in um, yeah, I think he meant uh, meant interest, but negative interest rate for home loans. The, the reason that the bank is willing to give negative interest is because the central bank is giving them uh, an even lower uh, negative interest, right? So say if the central bank is um, for, for every, um, you know, uh, $1,000 that, that you're giving out in loans, they'll give you $10. If you then turn around to um, the, the person that wants to take the loan and says, I'll give you $5 for taking a loan, then the bank is still making $5, right? Uh, and that, that's obviously a pretty oversimplified version. And, and also, you, 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 the argument would be, well, why wouldn't they just keep it as cash? Um, why wouldn't they just sort of print it and keep it in their vaults? Or why wouldn't they invest in something else instead of this? Because you know, hey, look, it's great that the, the central bank is is giving them interest at a, a sorry, giving them loans at a negative interest rate. But you know, they're a profit-seeking institution. Worst-case scenario, shouldn't they just sit on it as cash, or or shouldn't they give it to something else that hey, maybe it's a little bit risky but has positive returns and uh, and the answer is you'd think so, yes, but um, the way sort of institutional banking works like that, it, it's not very conducive to it. They have an option to where they put their money. Um, they either sort of, but banks don't have bank accounts. They are the bank, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to, you know, do something like, well, like they invest in government bonds, but those are returning interest rates that are far, far further negative than um, that a home loan would be. Um, they could invest it into, you know, things like, you know, credit cards or car loans or personal loans, all that sort of stuff, or, or you know, uh, business line of credit uh, products um, that have a much sure. higher return. But there's only there's only so much demand for those types of products. So eventually, you know, they're either going to have to do one of two things. They're either going to have to compete on price to where it becomes, you know, the risk is just not worth the reward uh, in terms of the interest rates they can charge. Or um, they can say, hey, you know what, this is the closest thing that we're going to have to saving. You know, it's a little bit riskier than a government bond, but it's the closest thing that we can have to genuinely sitting on money uh, without well, printing it out as cash. So and just actually, banks 
do have bank accounts with the central bank, right? The central but, bank, yeah. Um, but the, the central bank, yeah. yeah. The, the funds the that have in that account. Interest, right? yeah. Like, yeah. Be, beyond uh, beyond the, the equity capital requirement that a bank has, they're actually paying uh, the central bank to have the money sitting there. So yeah. that way they're incentivized to, you know, actually go and do something with it. There's yeah. also an, another concern, which is something that we saw after 2008 now, um, uh, I've talked to a lot of bankers, uh, like I, from working in the industry, I, I, like I, I'm not going to mention the exact banks, but you know, big, big banks in, um, in Europe in particular, where, you know, the board, they're aware that if everything goes tits up, they're going to be bailed out. Right. And yeah, yeah. Th this is something yeah. that got confirmed to them after 2008. And now they know for sure it's going to happen. So this also means that they're incentivized to, um, uh, to take on more risk because they they know that they can privatize the the profits and socialize the losses. Yeah, like this is actually something that that they factor in into their decision process now. This is oh, yeah, many, hazardous. So yeah, a lot of banks um, are too big to fail now. Of course, it's like got to that stage. Yeah, I uh, think it's, it's it's one of those really kind of confusing things in negative interest rates because you just we've basically grown up our entire life. If you borrow money, you pay interest. If you, mm -hmm. if you save money, you, you get interest in the bank. But um, I think one of the best ways I, I've sort of heard it explained is, is like this. Um, say you had the ability to, um, you know, borrow money at a negative interest rate. What would you do with it? Well, you would say, okay, well, if I'm, a, if I'm an institution, you know, you, you beauty, I'd, I'd just go down to my bank. Hey, bank, can you give me a loan for $1 million, please? All right, no worries. Um, they'll, they'll write you a loan for $1 million. And let's say it's at negative 1% interest. Cool. All right. I'm going to go and, uh, you know, just keep that as a big pile of cash. Um, I would effectively be earning $10,000 a year for keeping my big pile of cash around. Now, of course, I've got to keep that pile of cash secure. You know, and that's, that's you know, some, something that's a bit risky. Maybe I'll have to pay security guards, you know, or, or I'll keep it in a safety deposit box or whatever it may be for, you know, $5,000 a year, but at the end of the day, I'm still profiting $5,000 a year. This is fantastic. And banks are kind of in the same boat. They're thinking of the same way to do exactly that. They're going, you beauty, we can borrow money at negative interest rates from our central bank. But how do we how do we basically keep this as cash? Now, as, as uh, Tyus correctly pointed out, yeah, of course, the kind of sums of money that we're talking about, it's just not feasible to keep as actual, you know, paper rectangles, you know, cash as, as we sort of know it. Um, it would literally sort of overflow their safe. So we know we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. It's just it's just not logical to do so. Uh, it doesn't really work like that for, for institutions of that size. Now they could keep it in their, their basically the bank's bank account in, in a central bank, but they're going to be charged a negative interest rate for that. Um, so they go, well, that sucks. You know, we're, we're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul there. What we need is a, an extremely low risk investment. Government bonds are normally the way that we go with that. They're extremely low risk, but ah, bugger. Now, they're paying negative interest rates as well. What we should do is, you know, hey, home loans are sometimes the best, the next best thing. They're securitized lending. They've got an asset class and a, and a um, sort of debt debt asset uh, all sort of rolled into one. So they're pretty, pretty safe. But, uh, you know, we've got to encourage people to actually sort of borrow this. Now, we can write it at, at negative interest rates, and that'll encourage people to borrow so we can get lots and lots of this business. Um, and that's the closest thing that they can get to literally keeping a pile of cash around as you would if you were an individual that was given the opportunity to borrow money at negative interest rates. Now, a big distinction here as well is, is if around those home loans, um, 
One, I, I believe the criteria to qualify for these negative interest rate home loans is extremely strict. Uh, we're talking about, you know, absolutely prime borrowers, good income, good credit scores. Uh, I believe the the value of the loan compared to the value of the property has to be extremely low as well. Uh, so if you live in a $1 million home, let's say, you might only be able to borrow $500,000, against the value of the property. So there's a huge margin of error in terms of what the, the value of the property can move around before the bank won't be able to cover their position there. Uh, and of course, it has to be a uh, principal and interest home loan, which means that you still have cash flows to the bank. You still have to pay, you still have to make a repayment, um, you know, every month. So it's not like an interest-only home loan where the bank will actually send you a check at the end of every month. You, you still have to write a check to the bank and the actual money that you pay back over the, let's say, the course of a 30-year loan will be less than what you borrowed, um, but there is still the, the cash flow velocity is, is to these banks. But uh, it is a really, really fascinating case study nonetheless because it's just run so contrary to, to what we normally think of in our, in our financial landscape. Um, yeah, it is interesting. Probably, probably not a great sign when we see sort of really just bizarre things like that kind of happening. It's, I don't know, it doesn't doesn't bode well for for what we see in our economy. I, as a, as a, as a uh, master's of finance, I absolutely hate negative interest rates because uh, this is uh, very hard for me to admit. I have just failed to really wrap my mind around uh, negative interest rates. So I'm gonna go back and. Uh, Spend some time uh, soul searching uh, because I mean I, I fundamentally I, like I feel like I understand them, but at the same time I'm just like every time uh, people start talking about it, I'm just like okay wait hold on a second is there something I'm missing like uh, there, there's also another that, level to this which is the you know the international um, uh, the international government bond rates right because what what you can do is as a bank is you you can uh, you can take that in one country. And then you can buy assets in a different country. So let's say that you're getting negative interest on uh, um, the loans that you're giving out in, um, let's say you're based in Germany or whatever, and you're getting ne negative interest on uh, on that on that money that you lend. And then you go and and buy, um, let's say in New Zealand, you you go and buy government bonds there. I believe they're still paying. Uh, uh, I, I believe they're paying like 0.6% interest rate or something like that. Yeah, yeah so, New Zealand government bonds. Australian and th this causes capital flight, as I was talking yeah. about earlier, right? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, yeah it has... the... Sorry, yeah, now uh, uh, to Captain to, uh, Locke. Now, finally, there was, uh, you know, a, a, a fantastic YouTuber that made a, I know. a video about I know. Sort of negative mm. interest rates, explaining them in a short, concise 15-minute video that mm, yeah. uh, That would be great, right? But uh, no, of course. Is it Compound Daily? Compound Daily, have you made that video yet? Uh, no, I think, I, think, I, think, I think the dude's name goes by, like, Economics Explained or something oh, like I'll that. I'll have to look him up then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. Uh, <laughs> get back in line. Uh, beautiful. Cool. So look, um, that is where I'll wrap it up. I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that, that Peter, it's, it's one 30 for you in the morning. Uh, I'm assuming as well as it is, for it is. Me. um, cause, cause of us Australians and, and we're here to, to cater to you American audiences and, <laughs> uh, you know, be, be, be awake and, and having these discussions at, at an uncommon hour, just so that you guys can, uh, the Aussie battlers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but I just want to sort of, um, say a huge thank you to, to everyone that's watching. Uh, and, and of course, a bigger thank you to our panelists. Uh, I would really encourage uh, everyone to go 
uh, and have a look at, at Peter Economics uh, channel. Um, I'll leave a link for that in in this um, the description of, of this Q and A stream, uh, as well as Compounded Daily. Um, one of the the big takeaways from the video was the idea of uh, of short selling, uh, and Compounded Daily just so happened to uh, have a brilliantly put together video uh, explaining exactly sort of what uh, short selling was, the the considerations there, and and a lot of these other videos are uh, just unbelievably well put together and don't get nearly the the kind of traction that they should. So. Um, I, I can't recommend um, his channel enough there as well. And obviously coming from an individual that has, uh, you know, such insight into the sorts of industry, that's not someone talking about it. It's not some some academic pompous person sort of talking about this, this the theory of how this kind of works. It's like, you know, this is actually how it works. You know, if you're in an investment bank, this is this is what's going to happen. Uh, so it's real. It's really, really good. Uh, and then, of course, you know, a shameless plug to our Discord server as well. I'll leave a link to that. Um, so thank you to to Block and Matthias who who are senior moderators over there and always sort of have a unique insight into everything like that. Um, but that out of the way, I think we'll end the stream. So uh, I'm going to go pass out in bed. Cheers, guys. Thank right. you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.